All right. Well, welcome to the second episode of Primary Care Update. I'm Dr. Mark A. Bell. I'm a family doc, professor at the University of Georgia, and editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence Plus, an evidence-based online primary care reference from Wiley Blackwell. If you like what you hear on our podcast, and even if you don't, please check out www.essentialevidenceplus.com. So Primary Care Update is a summary of recent research that we think is relevant for primary care docs to know about. Uh, There's commentary by our panel of expert primary care physicians. Got to say the disclaimer, the opinions expressed are those of the commentators, and this podcast does not represent medical advice or the endorsement of any product. If you're a primary care physician, be skeptical and read the article yourself to form your own conclusions. If you're a patient listening in, please talk to your primary care doctor about any questions you may have. So once again, I'm joined today by my good friends, Dr. John Hickner, family physician and editor of the Journal of Family Practice, and Dr. Henry Berry, professor of family medicine at Michigan State University. Hi, guys. Hi, Mark. It's been a gorgeous summer up here in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. I was out in my Beneteau 35 having a great sale on Betanoch yesterday. Nice. So where's Betanoc? Is that like a bay up in the Upper Peninsula, the southern shore there? Yes, it's the northern reach of Green Bay. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. All right. And Henry, you've been keeping busy? Yeah, but I have a a question for you. Do you know what today is? I do not. Today is the 25th anniversary of the first airing of The X-Files. How appropriate that we should be airing this on the same day of the show that made famous the tagline, the truth is out there. (laughs) And definitely uh, one was more, one of the cast members was more skeptical than the other. That's true. But (laughs) in this case, all three of us are pretty skeptical. All right. That's cool. I didn't know that. I haven't seen the latest uh, version of that show, so I'm going to have to check that out. Um, So we're going to, let's get off, get started with uh, study number one. So this is a study that I picked uh, it is uh, from Benagmush and colleagues, and it's called Efficacy and Safety of the Use of Non-Vitamin K Antagonist Oral Anticoagulants in Patients with Non-Valvular Atrial Fibrillation and Concomitant Aspirin Therapy, a Meta-Analysis of Randomized Trials. It appeared in Circulation, 2018, Volume 137, page 1117, if you want to check it out yourself. So they asked the question, so for patients with non-valvular atrial fibrillation, who also take low-dose aspirin, and many of them do have an indication for it, what's the best approach to anticoagulation, warfarin or a one of these DOAs or direct oral anticoagulants? And lots of the patients in this situation, this meta-analysis found four randomized trials that had over 20,000 patients who fit into this category of AFib plus low-dose aspirin for mostly cardiovascular prevention. Each of the studies randomized patients to either warfarin or one of the DOAs, things like edoxaban, apixaban, rivaroxaban, the bigotran. They found that patients randomized to a DOA were significantly less likely to have a stroke or a systemic embolism. The hazard ratio was 7.78, so about a 22% relative reduction, and also about a 15% lower risk of vascular death than those taking warfarin. Patients randomized to get a DOA uh, were also significantly less likely to have an intracranial hemorrhage, which is really the most devastating complication of anticoagulation. Hazard ratio there was 0.4, so a pretty large relative reduction. Now, it's always important to think in terms of absolute reductions. So if you have a baseline annual risk of stroke or embolism of, let's say, 2%, 
a hazard ratio of 0.78 would lower that to about 1.6%. That makes the number needed to treat about 250. So that's a lot of patients who take a DOA instead of warfarin to prevent one adverse event. Now, these are devastating adverse events, and that may be worth it, but it's given the current cost of those DOAs, uh, I think we have to keep that in mind. So bottom line, the overall balance of benefits and harms does favor DOAs over warfarin, but the absolute benefit is quite small in patients who are needing anticoagulation and already taking low-dose aspirin. Um, I think it's also worth noting that for patients who have a chance to VASC score of zero or one, aspirin alone is uh, perfectly adequate for those patients because they have a fairly low risk of stroke. Guys, John, what do you think? The newer oral anticoagulants have definite advantages. There's no question about that. And I think they're coming into vogue. Hopefully the price will gradually start coming down, although I don't know how likely that is. I would say though that for patients already on warfarin who are doing fine and are stable and their INR is not bouncing around, I'd be inclined to keep them on the warfarin. This is a, a really a, a relatively very small difference. Yeah. So based on these data, over 98% of people taking these new agents are really not going to get much benefit. Uh, they are simpler to use. We can dose them based on weight. They're, um, don't, they don't require the same kind of monitoring that warfarin does. Warfarin's biggest problem has been historically that it is not a good sandbox player. It does not play well, well with other drugs. Unfortunately, we're starting to find that this family of medications also doesn't necessarily play well with others. We have a paper from just about a year ago by Chang published in JAMA that basically looked at a registry of over 91,000 patients with atrial fibrillation taking these agents, and they found major bleeding in 4,800 of these 91,000 patients, and that the combinations with amiodarone, phenytoin, fluconazole, and rifampin were especially um, uh, problematic. So I think as these are around for a lot longer, we may find that it's also not as, as advantageous as warfarin. Yeah, isn't that always the case? The longer drugs are around, we learn more about subtleties about their use and, and complications and, and relatively rare but important uh, interactions. So that's always good to keep in mind. Um, so thanks for that. Um, I'm going to tell you our quiz question now. It's time for the quiz. We like to do one every, uh, every issue, and we're going to give you the answer at the end of the podcast. So overdiagnosis occurs when cancer screening or screening in general detects a disease that never would have caused symptoms in a patient's normal lifespan. What's the best estimate of the percentage of breast cancers that are overdiagnosed by screening? Here are the options. Less than 2%, cancer is cancer. 5 to 10%, 20 to 30%, or more than half? I'll give you the answer later. And I'm going to turn it over to John now, who has uh, a, a study about asthma that is very relevant for our listeners. John, take it away. This study was published by Bussey et al. in the New England Journal of Medicine this year, uh, volume 378, page 2497, if you'd like to look it up, entitled Combined Analysis of Asthma Safety Trials of Long-Acting Beta-2 Agonists. The question they addressed is, is adding a long-acting beta agonist to an inhaled corticosteroid safe and effective for patients with persistent asthma? 
Now, this is a meta-analysis of four very large drug company-sponsored trials, which were done very well, by the way, required by the FDA to test the safety of the LABA-inhaled steroid combos compared to the steroid alone. Recall that past epidemiological studies of long-acting beta agonists given alone showed excess mortality, but there have been no trials, no large trials of the combinations until these four were published. Each trial had over 12,000 patients, so when you combine it, that was nearly 50,000 patients. And each study had exactly the same design. Of course, they used a different combination because they were sponsored by drug companies. Now, uh, the results were basically negative regarding any safety differential between the steroid alone and the steroid long-acting beta agonist combination. They had very few really bad events. There were only two asthma-related deaths uh, altogether, and they were both in the combination group. Uh, when they put the analysis all together from these four trials, there were no significant differences in the risk of hospitalization between the groups. Now, although the trials were to test the safety of these combinations, and basically they found there was no difference compared to the inhaled steroid alone, I want to comment on the positive outcomes. The likelihood of an asthma exacerbation was lower in the combination group, but the number needed to treat was fairly high just to prevent one exacerbation over six months. You had to treat 53 patients. And there was no difference in hospitalization rates, as I mentioned. So if you look at the cost, which is over $300 retail for these combo inhalers, that's about $100 more than the inhaled steroid alones. The cost of the combos to prevent one exacerbation leading to an ED visit or a course of oral steroids over six months was $5,300. Now, Compare this with the cost of a burst of prednisone at Walmart, which is five bucks. So if you want to be cost conscious, make sure your patients have five days of prednisone on the shelf at home and use it if their steroid inhaler is not doing the job. So the bottom line to me is I don't see a compelling case at any rate, uh, whatever the safety is, for using these combination inhalers, except perhaps for patients with very severe asthma where the number needed to treat should be much more favorable. What do you think? Yeah, that's uh, that's a great point. And we always have to keep in mind that the greatest benefit you know, accrues to those at the greatest risk of any intervention. And lots of interventions will reduce events by about the same relative amount. So if you start from a higher risk point, you're going to get more benefit. And so uh, I was a little surprised. I actually kind of expected to see some reduction in hospitalizations. And I think it's great to point out the difference. Um, you know, 53 exacerbations prevented, uh, you know, per, uh, person, extra person, you know, put on the lab is that, that's, that's not a great, uh, not a great deal. I have to say that I was not surprised by these numbers because in addition to these safety trials, there have been numerous other trials of these combination, uh, versus, uh, non-combination steroids. And, and really the results of all the trials are similar to this and not very impressive. So, just don't know that these combo inhalers give you much bang for From your a body. safety perspective, I just want to point out that none of these studies were longer than six months. And if there are more unusual, adverse, long-term consequences, we may need to stay tuned for, for further studies. Well Good put. Good point. 
Um, so it is now the next segment is something we're going to call Nerd Alert. Henry has his pocket protector on and his bow tie. At least I see the bow tie and is going to talk about the demise of the National Guidelines Clearinghouse. Henry, take it away. Thank you, Mark. So evidence-based medicine is an approach to caring for patients that integrates their values with the best available information. And the ultimate goal is to improve their health outcomes. One of the underestimated and underemphasized tenets is the need to incorporate all the relevant research and not just focusing on any single study. One of the methods that we use quite frequently that reduces work and integrates multiple studies are systematic reviews and meta-analyses. However, the main limits to those are that they typically address one specific question, such as, is treatment X better than treatment Y at decreasing a particular outcome? Or if test one is more accurate than test two in diagnosing a specific condition? Clinicians, however, face a much wider spectrum of questions than are typically addressed by any single systematic review or meta-analysis. This is where guidelines come in. Now, there are many different kinds of guidelines, those that are evidence-based, and then there's the kind that we refer to as bog sats, a bunch of old guys sitting around talking. The evidence-based guidelines are the ones that we tend to really look forward to using because they integrate a whole spectrum on how you might approach patients in general. One of the challenges, though, is that these have been developed by many different organizations, and it used to be very difficult to track them down. So in 1998, your tax dollars were put to good work to try to aggregate all of the available guidelines into a single website called the National Guideline Clearinghouse, the NGC. Over time, the NGC added features to make these much more transparent and to be able to identify guidelines that use an explicit evidence-based process, quality assessments, as well as those that might have a potential conflict of interest. Sadly, in July of 2018, under the guise of budget cuts, this incredibly valuable resource used by people from all over the planet was shut down. In a commentary in the Annals of Internal Medicine, it was pointed out that in its last year of operation, the National Guideline Clearinghouse only cost $1.2 million dollars which is basically budget dust in the big scheme of things in a multi-billion dollar industry. So the good news is that the National Guideline Clearinghouse has posted on their website their goal to try to identify alternate funding to restore the NGC. So if you value rational patient-centered care, call your elected officials and ask them to help to restore those cuts. Henry, thanks for drawing attention to this. Um, you know, I was incredibly uh, disappointed. And, you know, we we teach in our CME courses, you know, physicians how to access information. And this is always one of the things we recommend is that one of the first places they go is the NGC. Uh, it's a, it was a great resource. Of, um, you know, I, I can't help but think that, you know, often evidence-based guidelines will have winners and losers. And there are a lot of people in industry and pharma and, and that prefer perhaps to compete based on marketing more than on evidence. And so I, I can't help but think that there may have been a political motivation as well as a budgetary one in uh, getting rid of this really valuable resource. So, yeah, you know, talk to the, if you're a member of the American Academy of Family Physicians or the ACP 
talk to your representatives at the state and national level and say, you know, we really need to figure out a way to support this and, and revive it. Another service that they provided uh, has to do with the quality of guidelines because not all guidelines are equal. And their attempt to try to give us some information about uh, the, the sources of the guidelines, the, the quality of the guidelines, I think is very, very helpful to have this all in one spot. So hopefully this will revive. Yeah. Well, we can keep our fingers crossed. But in the meanwhile, um, you know, send, send an email to your folks at AFP and ACP and see if we can light a fire. So the last study is Henry's, um, and we're going to be talking about advanced care planning. So this is a paper by Overbeek published in the June 2018 issue of the Journal of the American Geriatric Society that basically asked whether or not a special training program would actually improve the uptake of advanced directives in selecting a surrogate decision maker. This was a cluster randomized trial, a little bit different than the usual randomized trial in that they cluster took clusters of practices and randomized those as opposed to single individuals. This is designed to try to prevent potential contamination and altered behaviors. They took elderly patients living in residential care, those who were receiving home care close by. The intervention used trained facilitators and educational materials and tools that were mainly in patients' goals, values, and preferences. Remember our definition of evidence-based medicine? This is right at the heart of it. Part of the study looked at something that nobody really cares about called an activation score, uh, but they also tried to identify whether or not people actually completed an advanced directive or selected a surrogate. So they had 201 patients in 16 clusters. The patients were in their mid-80s, largely women. At the end of a year, 93%, nearly everybody in the intervention group had completed an advanced directive compared with only a third of the control patients. That's a number needed to treat of two. This is real, this is real stuff here. Additionally, at the end of a year, almost everybody had actually identified a surrogate decision maker, 94% compared to two-thirds of the control patients. The only drawback that I could see is that besides needing specially trained facilitators, the consultations took an average of two hours, including travel time to complete this. So it may not be as feasible as we would like. Well, this advanced planning study, Henry, is is quite interesting, especially the very high rate of compliance in the intervention group. I guess my big question is whether this is feasible or not to really train up practices well enough to do this. But not much else has worked, quite frankly. So hopefully there can be a similar intervention that is practical that we can increase advanced care planning, which we know is very important these days, given the aging population, including me, by the way. Well, it's certainly important in terms of reducing costs and improving quality because we we all want the right amount of care at the end of life, but not too much or too little. And, and so this is a really important stuff. And we want to make sure that we are, you know, giving it the proper time and the proper uh, reimbursement. And, you know, we all know about the death panel uh, controversy. So hopefully this is something that will also be reimbursed by Medicare for these kind of conversations. So we're going to wrap up. Um, it is time for the answer to our quiz. So the question was, overdiagnosis occurs when screening detects a disease that never would have caused symptoms in a patient's normal lifespan. We ask you to estimate the percentage of breast cancers that are overdiagnosed by screening. The options were less than 2%, 5 to 10, 20 to 30, and more than half. 
And the correct answer is about 20 to 30%. Now, this is an estimate, but it's pretty consistent across studies. Some have found higher percentages, some a little bit lower, but the best estimate is about 20 to 30%. Now, of course, the challenge is knowing which cancers are indolent and which ones are going to be aggressive. We do have some trials underway now, actually, looking at less aggressive therapy, more of an active surveillance approach to women with uh, low-grade ductal carcinoma in situ, uh, much as we've changed our care for prostate cancers as a result of knowing that many of those prostate cancers are overdiagnosed. So hopefully we'll have better tools so we can know which cancers are more likely to be indolent and which ones are more likely to be aggressive. Anyway, I hope you all enjoyed today's discussion. Thanks, guys, for participating. Please send any feedback or ideas to me at abel at uga.edu. That's E-B-E-L-L at uga.edu. And we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks with more primary care updates.